Welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And I'm Aina, contributing editor at Sifted, filling in for editor Amy, who's away on holiday this week. And if you're not familiar with Sifted, we are a publication that reports on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom every week to discuss the biggest things journalists have been reporting on and to speak to some of the people making the news. And this week, we'll be hearing about a climate tech startup's expansion into the US, controversy over a big generative AI company's fundraising, And there's also a call to build an AI supercomputer in Europe to combat godlike, possibly evil, generative AI. We'll also be hearing about a startup that has raised 31 million to turn wood into glass. Wonders never cease. And we're also going to be joined by our senior reporters Mimi Billing in Stockholm and Freya Prati, this time from Hungary. Mimi reported on the first real longevity clinic in Europe. Yes, one of those places where billionaires go so they can have like five extra years of good life, which is opening later this year. And I will say is actually not as expensive as you might think it would be. And Freya went on a trip with a very cool startup, which is going around collecting biological samples from hard to reach areas. So the first news item this week, we heard from Swedish battery manufacturer and Europe's largest climate tech startup, Nordfeldt, about its decision to expand into the US within weeks. Eleanor, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, so this isn't exactly surprising news. Nordfeldt has been saying for a while that it's going to do something in the US in Q2 of this year. But given that Q2 is really close, that basically means that Northvolt has to make a decision, it's going to make a decision on expanding into North America in the coming weeks. That's what the company's co-founder, Paolo Saruti, told our reporter Freya Prati on Friday. It would be the company's first operations outside of Europe. So why is it expanding into the US? I mean, obviously, I think there's the very obvious reason that the US is a huge market, right? Um, And there's clearly demand for Northvolt's technologies over there. But also, we can't talk about climate tech right now without mentioning the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, the IRA, which is America's giant climate bill. And that offers significant incentives for companies building green technology to move to the US or at least have some operations in the United States. Yeah, I love that. I love the acronym IRA. You know, it just makes me think of Irish terrorism or freedom fighting, depending on your point of view. But I mean, the IRA sounds kind of damaging for Europe, right? How is it impacting climate tech over here? Yeah, so I think the US really got ahead of the curve compared to Europe on incentivizing climate tech. This bill was passed last year. And then since then, we've seen a flurry of climate tech startups go from Europe and announce that they're opening operations in the U.S. or they're moving to the U.S. A great example of this is Climeworks. It's a carbon removal company, and it's another one of Europe's biggest climate tech startups. It's actually from Switzerland, and that company has also recently confirmed its expansion into America. EU policymakers are definitely now kind of shaking in their boots a little bit, like, oh my gosh, we have to do something about this. And they have pulled together a response which is known as the Net Zero Industry Act. But the Net Zero Industry Act is a little bit different because while America's bill tries to stimulate things through actual subsidies, European policymakers are trying to focus more on permit timelines and then also curbing the amount of tech that authorities can buy from overseas. 
Cool. Thank you, Eleanor. We'll be keeping an eye on the big moves and, and the counter moves in Europe. Well, I guess the topic that doesn't seem to leave the news agenda recently is AI. Someone challenged me the other day to go an entire day without hearing the word AI, and I don't think that that has happened for the last at least a year. Um, we had two interesting pieces of AI news this week. One involved a leaked deck and some leaked WhatsApp messages. Ina, what did this leaked deck tell us about Gen AI Giant Stability AI's Series A? Yeah, very sexy leak. So to catch you all up, Stability AI is a big generative AI company. Burst onto the scene last October, raising just over 100 million in a Series A round. And to some, this success was completely out of the blue. The CEO, Imad Mostak, is a former hedge fund manager, not very well known in machine learning circles, I think, at the time. Yes, his company appeared to be behind Stable Diffusion, one of the most impressive text-to-image models on the market. And we subsequently learned that, well, actually, it didn't build the Stable Diffusion codes. Some researchers in Munich had, and it didn't own the IP. But what the company had done was created this nice interface on top of the model that was being used around the world to make images from text prompts. So tell me about the juicy leaked pitch slides, Ina. Yes. So the leaked deck was given sifted by a former Stability employee. It's dated June 2022, so some months before Series A raise closed. And within this leaked material, there's the suggestion that Stability was saying it had, quote, co-created products developed by other Gen AI companies like San Francisco-based rival Midjourney, when in reality Stability had just provided computing grants, i.e. paying for cloud access to the massive processing power needed to train AI models. As Sifted asked Stability what the company meant by co-creating products, and the spokesperson said the company had provided infrastructure in the form of compute grants to Midjourney, but did not elaborate on what it meant by co-creating products. Stability did tell Sifted that they have always been clear about the fact that they did not build the stable diffusion model. So what about those leaked telegrams that we also got a peek at? Yeah, there was a bunch of telegram messages which give us a good sense of Stability's strategy for how it would communicate with investors. So it appears that the CEO was telling investors that Stability had millions of people using its, quote, models, despite using a third-party model, aka Stable Diffusion, and not having announced any of its own models yet. As Stability told Sifted, this referred to models developed in-house or under its umbrella of research hubs for which it had supported. This support included providing a platform for the research and training of the models as well as compute power. Okay, so what is next? So yes, Stability released its own proprietary model last week and Sifted contacted it to ask about fundraising and didn't respond to questions about that or about its runway. There's also been reports that it's struggling to generate revenue at the moment. So we'll have to see if we can secure fresh funding. Tim Smith, our reporter, will undoubtedly be hot on the case, like like the bloodhound that he is. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, it is really one of the only European gen AI companies that's managed to raise 
that much funding as compared to the big giants like OpenAI in the United States. So I think people were very excited to see a European company raise this kind of money, but we will see, I guess, how their product goes and how they continue to differentiate themselves. But staying with AI, a lot of really clever people are calling for a pause or at least a slowdown in the development of these AI models. Um, but one German AI researcher says that we should take an entirely different solution to mitigate the risks of these large language models. Yeah, this is Christoph Schumann. He's founder of German AI nonprofit Line. And he's basically saying that trying to slow down AI development is a lost battle. It's, it's a pipe dream. It's going to happen anyway. So what we should do is develop this counterweight, I guess, to open AI and, and all these other crazy, powerful gen AI companies. His idea basically is to create an AI supercomputer for the people to be financed and built by world governments. That would, I guess, help researchers and companies keep pace a little bit with all these crazy AI developments. Yeah, and I guess the other thing that he's kind of con concerned about is the possibility that we'll just have these big monopolies of companies that control large language models, right? And so this would actually help try and break those kind of monopolies so that we wouldn't have just a couple of companies kind of deciding how this technology is being used. But what exactly would that look like? How much money would it cost? And how does Schumann think that it should be run? Yeah, it would cost a fair bit of money, I would imagine. His estimates, one to five billion, which is a lot. But as Tim says in his piece, he puts it into perspective a little bit. He says, well, the budget for the US defense is 800 billion. And that's Bavaria alone recently announced 300 million for quantum. So we can pony up big sums of money sometimes for these big projects. And his idea for how it should be run, well, he, he, he imagines this board of directors made up of open source researchers, AI professors, some mid-scale business reps as well. And they'd be gatekeepers. They'd control access to this computing power. Very interesting, I guess, proposal, I'd say. But seeing how bad most politicians around the world are coming to a consensus on fighting really, really big things. Like, just look at our track record on trying to fight climate change. I'm not really sure, unless something really, really bad happens, that this is going to happen anytime soon. But who knows? We'll see. Yeah, you could imagine, I mean, policymakers do like spending money on supercomputers, in Brussels, they do pay for upgrades or, or for building new high-performance supercomputers. And, you know, the internet was created in the big government-backed facility, CERN, in 1989. So might be some added motivation to do this. But turning away from ethertech, as someone used a great phrase yesterday, to actual physical technology. Yeah, turning to something a little bit more tangible, we have this company in France that's turning wood into glass. Amazing. Elner, who are these guys? What do we know about them? Yeah, Wudu, this is a really cool company. You know, we have a lot of stuff that comes across our desk, and this was one that came to us. And I was just like, this is sick. So basically, they're a France-based startup. They have raised a 31 million seed round, and they're creating alternatives, eco-friendly alternatives to leather, glass, concrete, and steel. 
So basically what they do is in wood, there is this natural binding compound called lignin. Wudu extracts this, sucks it out along with the air that's in wood from planks of wood that are rotted or they're damaged or otherwise wouldn't be used by the construction industry. And then they replace the air and the lignin with a biofiller that changes the properties of the wood. And depending on the amount of lignin that's removed, they can produce three materials. So for example, you know, if you're making something that's a glass replacer or a glass alternative, you'd have to take out more than if you were creating something to replace concrete or steel. But why do we need this? Why do we need this company? Yeah, so obviously construction materials are such a huge, they're super energy intensive to produce, like glass, steel, for making glass, you need tons of sand, steel, you need tons of, you know, heat, electricity to get things up to a certain temperature to be able to create steel. And then obviously leather, there are vegan leathers now, right? But Leather has a very big environmental footprint. By contrast, wood itself is a carbon sink. So when trees absorb carbon, they just store that carbon inside them until someone were to burn them, right? And so if we can use wood that would otherwise maybe be destroyed or even just thrown away to create buildings or other things in our built environment, um, then we're actually keeping that carbon in the wood. Cool. So what's next for, for Wudu? So currently they have the glass and leather alternatives ready to go, but they're really focused on getting the construction materials, the alternatives for concrete and steel ready so that they can start to roll those out in buildings. The founder and CEO, Timothy Boitouzé, was actually an architect originally. And he was, this, this whole company was really born out of his frustration with the construction industry and its environmental footprint. So the real kind of holy grail for Wudu is being able to replace construction materials that we use now. We're on to our first interview with our senior reporter, Mimi Billing, who has been diving into one of Europe's first longevity clinics. Mimi, tell us a little bit about Live Lounge and Maximon, the Swiss company that's making this facility. Yeah, so Maximon is this company builder based in Switzerland, in Zurich, and it's been kind of, it's only been going on for a couple of years. So it was founded in, I believe, 20, 2021. 20, and it is kind of has already like two, three startups. One, focused on longevity supplements so that we can live a longer, healthier life. And then after that, it's also started a data platform for all your DNA sequencing or your blood tests to be able to offer you the right solution for you to live a longer life. So the next step was obviously to take this into a more like physical place. And that's where the longevity clinic comes in. So Live Lounge is obviously, it's just a working name I've heard because I interviewed Elizabeth Reuter, who is the company's kind of medical brain behind it, who's been working on this now for more than nine months to try to understand what kind of treatments are actually making sense and are, as, as she says herself, sexy enough and new enough, but also safe enough to be able to then prolong our lives. So I thought her resume, her CV was pretty impressive, Mimi. Tell me a little bit about um, Reuter's story and 
you kind of highlighted that she had a similar motivation to some other people to getting into longevity. Tell me about that. Yeah, because I've obviously looked into longevity a bit and everyone that seems to get into longevity either comes from some kind of like cancer research or like Harvard and been doing loads of loads of research before into either like cellular research or, I don't know, genes or, you know, DNA, everything like that. So Elizabeth Reuter is very much the same. So her CV is, you know, eight years at Harvard and having done like deep sequencing, clinical trials and molecular biology. I mean, she, she knows her stuff. You could say that. So she got into longevity because she, like many others in this field, felt that the healthcare system is failing. And I mean, 3% of our overall budgets go to preventative care, which means that it's very little that goes to preventative care. So making sure that we don't actually get ill from the beginning. I thought that was such a good thing that you made clear in the piece that these longevity clinics or kind of the longevity space in general is actually not really about, okay, living to 140 or 150 years old. It's actually just trying to make sure that the later years of your life are just healthier and you have a better quality of life later on. But it was also interesting in your piece that you you pointed out just how difficult it is. We still have no idea of what really works or what combination of things work. No, and I, I'm. <laughs> I can say that I'm. I'm. A, I'm one of those kind of people who try different things, right? And I have no idea how. I mean, how do you know how the vitamins and supplements and all the things that you maybe put in your body actually react to one one another, or if hot saunas are actually good for you with your kind of genetic makeup, or if you should have a cold shower instead. Or maybe both. I don't know. But this is the thing that is quite interesting. It's like precision medicine. It's, it all comes together. It's like what is good for you. And I think if we can actually manage that to find out what's good for each and every individual without a huge cost, that's obviously going to be very beneficial for both the healthcare system overall, but also, I mean, obviously for these kind of companies. Because what I think is why this is so, why this is coming up now is probably because people with like, you know, smart watches or, you know, I have an aura ring myself. It's kind of all these kind of things tapping into that you yourself are in control of your health. And that is why this is now coming, you know, more and more to Europe as well, because longevity clinics is not a new phenomenon in, for example, the US, but it's it's been very much focused on the ultra rich, right? So there are, there are people who have like 30 doctors who are following them day to day just to make sure that they're going to live longer and live as long as they can and look 50 or 30 or 20 years younger than they actually are. I mean, so it's all about, you know, trying to get this to the masses in some way. And so I guess that was another interesting point about this was the price point of this clinic. I didn't actually think, I mean, yes, it's expensive, but it didn't seem as outrageous as I was kind of expecting it to be. So tell me a little bit about pricing and what kind of person they're targeting for this. Yeah. So I, I was actually quite surprised as well, because I thought it would be a much higher <laughs> price tag to actually get along, but it's only like 460 euros a month for a subscription basis. And then you actually get uh, diagnosis, diagnostics on your kind of blood and etc. every quarter, so every three months. But you also get a weekly treatment 
we don't really know what those treatments will be because this longevity clinic will open like later this year. But it could be anything from like IV infusions or blood, getting fresh blood or I don't know, blood plasma or, you know, there's so many different things out there that's coming in a way and that seems to be safe. But then, so actually, sorry, get back to your point there on how much it then costs because this is obviously not so much, but it's still quite a lot for a person with a normal wages, right? So it would be yeah. for the upper class uh, with about the wages of about maybe 90 uh, K a year. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to hear from Freya Pratzi about a trip she went on a few weeks ago to see some of the work from London-based startup Basecamp. Basecamp has a pretty fun business model. It goes around the world collecting biological samples in some of the world's most hard-to-reach and far-flung places. It's building a database of new proteins it finds, some of which it hopes can be sold for commercial applications. Basecamp will then share the money it makes with the communities who protect the ecosystems where the proteins are found. Freya accompanied them on their trip. We're 2.4 nautical miles from the shore in the middle of Lake Balaton. This is Marlon Clark. He's a field scientist at Basecamp Research, and he's an expert in reaching hard-to-reach places. He's not got your typical startup CV. He used to be an ice diver in the Antarctic. The reason we're out here is to collect samples of rare microbes and novel proteins. Under 1% of the world's proteins have been mapped, and we don't know what useful properties the other 99% could hold. Where we are, Lake Balaton in Hungary, has some special qualities that make it a good place to look. And Lake Balaton is this kind of Frankfurt-shaped, elongated lake, the largest lake in Europe. But strangely, it's only around uh, 3.1 metres deep. That's the average depth, 3.1 metres deep. So there's no stratification and uh, there's lots of mixing within this lake. So that makes it quite unique. The boat is full of kit. There's nets for trawling for plankton, a metal claw for grabbing soil from the lake bed and a microscope for having a look at the samples. Inika Knott, another field scientist for Basecamp, is taking a closer look at the plankton. This is so cool. It's just amazing to me how sometimes we forget that there's like this whole world out there that we just literally can't see with our bare eyes. And then when you look through a microscope, you see all these plankton of all these different sizes and some of them move super fast and some of them are super still and others, I don't know, it's just really, really cool sometimes to look through a microscope. Back on the shore, Inika and Marlon are setting up their field laboratory. This is where they take their collected samples and see if they've found new proteins that could have useful commercial applications. So our like, laboratory setup we've got is really low infrastructure. It can basically fit into two small boxes. That's nice and easy because we can basically operate completely on ourselves if need be. And we have done in previous expeditions, we can take all of our living supplies with us as well. You've just put the DNA in for sequencing and now you're sat in front of your laptop and you can see a screen full of green squares. Can you explain why that's good news? Yes. Um, yeah, we like green squares because basically what we see on the screen is a visual representation of the pores on the sequencer where DNA can come through. Real time, we can see that a string of DNA is being pulled through this pore and being read by the sequencer. 
Novel proteins like the ones Inikra Marlon are looking for can have huge value. One example that wasn't actually found by Basecamp is a protein that went into developing PCR tests. That protein was found in Yellowstone National Park in the 60s, and pharma companies have made a lot of money from its application. The catch with that is that none of that money went into conserving the nature and communities of Yellowstone. Now, in line with a new international law called the Nagoya Protocol, businesses must give back to the places where they find proteins. It's an ethos that's right at the heart of Basecamp's business model. So the Nagoya Protocol was uh, a framework that was signed by lots and lots of countries uh, around the world that kind of gives a framework for how states on one side can manage genetic resource use and also companies on the other side know how to operate under this umbrella system. So it kind of provides a framework to make sure that uh, benefits are given back, so payment for access or royalties. So let's say someone makes a million pound from a certain protein or other material that's found there. They make sure that 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 country, or it could be organisation slash council or national park receives benefits back and flows back. And that's a really important part to show that, you know, biodiversity is being valued and preserving it is really key. And by valuing it, hopefully we can promote preservation. So that was Marlon Clark, field scientist at Basecamp, finishing that report from Freya. And that's all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find our coverage on sifted.eu and we've linked to all of the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description and if you're a fan of this podcast you might want to check out our new podcast series downturn survival guides in partnership with eqt ventures each week startup life reporter anisa osman britain interviews resilient founders and experienced investors about operating in a downturn the link can be found in the show notes and let us know what you think of the podcast on Twitter or email hello at sifted.eu. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.